So, like I said, we are in Romans 2, and in this section, Paul is going to deal with um, another group of people who are, are sinning, but in different ways than we dealt with last week. So, I'm going to have... Um, I'm going to have my, my buddy Roy read to us. He's going to read verses 1 through 3. We're in Romans 2, 1 through 3. All right. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do not, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. Okay. So right off the bat, we have to ask this question, who is Paul talking to? So a couple weeks ago we explained, and last, and last week Drew illustrated as well, that whenever we study the Bible we go through this process of asking, okay, who's, who's the author, who's the audience, what's, what's the author's intended meaning to that audience? What are they trying to communicate to those specific people What's going on in that situation? Um, what is he saying, and how do we understand this? And so, uh, what we know about this church in Rome, one, is Paul has never been there. Two, it's made up of Jews and Gentiles. And kind of the backstory is, the most likely, the best we can understand is, Jews would have started this church. Uh, you can actually see those that are from Rome in Acts 1. So, like, the day of Pentecost, when when um, the Holy Spirit comes down and, and it, it describes all these different people, Jews from all over there, and, and, and some Jews from Rome were there. And so that, that maybe clues us into, wow, maybe some of those, the 3,000 that were added to that number that day, they actually left and, and went to Rome and started this church. So there's a pretty decent chance that's what happened. And then when, uh, and then in 46, AD 46, um, the emperor kicked all the Jews out of Rome. So by that time, this church had been going. There were Gentiles in the church. Jews were basically leading the church. And then uh, the Jews are kicked out. So now all of a sudden, just the Gentiles are there. And so what, what probably naturally takes place, they were gone for about five years, is the Gentiles just kind of start doing things, doing what they know to do, um, doing what was taught to them, and maybe kind of adding their own flavor to it. And then all of a sudden Jews come back into the mix and it's like, hey, wait, wait, what's going on? We're in charge here. What are you guys doing? I mean, I, we don't know that necessarily. We just kind of infer based on some of the events that went on. But we do know that Paul is addressing some racial issues here. He's, he's kind of dealing, dealing with what, what seems to be a little bit of tension between Jews and Gentiles. So we have to ask this question, who's he talking to? Um, and and what, what we've kind of concluded is, most likely, there's, there's options. It's either it's either everybody, or he's talking to a specific group of people. I, I tend to lean towards him talking to a specific group uh, called the Jewish people. So what I think happens is in 1, 18 through 32, he's talking specifically primarily to Gentiles. Um, and, and the reason I think that is because he basically says, you're idolaters. And that would be a very Jewish way to understand anybody who wasn't Jewish, is they're an idolater. They, worship, they don't worship the real God. They worship other gods. They, they, they've replaced God with other things. And so that's what Paul goes off on in, in the last section. But in here, he kind of switches gears towards those who, who claim to have to know the truth, yet don't, can't even live by it. And, and so you think he's dealing with more of a self-righteousness, which, which fits more of a Jewish audience than, than a Gentile audience. And so, what, what, I mean, obviously what's happening here is both are hearing. So he might be speaking to the Gentiles in the first section, but Jews are hearing it because, hello, uh, the golden calf or um, the exile. I mean, all of that happened because of their idolatry. So, so it's not like Jews were never idol, idol worshipers. They, they absolutely were. That's what got them in trouble. <coughs> but most likely he's talking to Gentiles, and in here there, there's a little bit of a switch, and so it's the same thing. Probably talking to Jewish, Jewish people with, with a Gentile audience, but, but Paul uses this... Um, Actually, I want to say this. John Stott put it this way. I thought this was helpful. He says, uh, he says you, he, he's talking in the, in the first section, people who do these things, they, they do sinful things, and then they approve others. Okay? So that's the first group. They approve others who do it. This group, in this, our text this week, 
is people who do sinful things, and then they condemn others who do the same things. So it's a little different deal, but, um, but still, still wrong. So what Paul's using when he, when he says, you, O man, um, he's not necessarily speaking to one particular man. He's using a, a, like a rhetorical device to kind of get the, get the audience he's writing to, to kind of lean in and, and follow along with his argument and think along with him. So that's kind of what's happened. That's, that's why he says what he says there. So here's, here's what I think is happening in the first three verses. So I've got four main points, okay, and they're, they're going to be on screen. First one's this. None of you are innocent. None of you are innocent. And, and then specifically, ways in which they're not innocent, because you can't live up to your own standard. That's the first way. You can't live up to your own standard. And the second way is that God, who's the true judge, um, judges based on the truth of their, of their actions. That God judges based on actions. He bases, on, bases it on the truth of what's real and happening. So, this word judgment um, appears like six times in these verses. Okay? It appears one other time in, the, in, in our section tonight, but, but a lot in these, six ver- in these three verses. Six times. So that's a clue. So anytime we're, we're studying the Bible and we want to know what something is saying, we, we have to spend some time observing, and when we see a word repeated six times in three verses, we go, okay, that, that means something. That, that's significant. And, and then the other thing that's mentioned four times is this idea of practicing or doing. And so there's an emphasis on judgment, and there's an emphasis on things that you do, things that you are practicing, the actions that you're doing. Uh, in verse 1, the word judgment or passing judgment uh, is the word carino, K-R-I-N-O, carino. And just to help you understand, Paul's a little bit of a play on words here. Um, he says, you're passing judgment, and, and then the word um, con- condemn yourself is the word kata carino. It's the same, comes from the same word, just added this word kata on the, on the front end of it, which basically just ha- has this emphasis of conclusion or after the fact. So in other words, what he's saying is, after you've had this, you form this critical opinion of someone, by doing that, you're basically condemning yourself. You're basically um, proving that you're guilty of the same thing because you do the same thing. And he gives this illustration, this picture of <clears throat> a, like a self-appointed judge, of someone who's pronouncing judgment on people and doing the exact same things that he's judging them for. And so Paul is throwing them some, some hard truth here, um, calling them some big things, accusing them, accusing them of some big things. And it might even be a bigger deal than, than what's happening in the first section. One, one commentator said this, If to sin while approving the sin is, is criminal, which is eight, 18 through 32 of chapter 1, <clears throat> is it not even worse to, consent, con- to condemn the sin and then jump right in? And there seems to be this um, accusation of hypocrisy that's happening here. So that's the first thing that's taking place. Here's the second one. In verse four, read verse four, Roy. For do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Okay. So the word contempt literally means to look down upon, or to despise. And so he's saying, you basically you've misjudged God's actions towards you. you you've judged all these people. Um, and then now you've misjudged God as well. And so, he says, you've looked down on God's attributes. All these things that God, these actions that God's been showing you, you've missed, you've missed them. You've misinterpreted them, misjudged them. And so he lists three attributes, kindness, um, forbearance, and patience. And kindness is, is a, this particular word is used by Paul ten times in his letters. He, uh, it's basically to pr- provide something beneficial to someone, to reach out with a helping hand. This is not the, the superficial niceness that I was talking about last week. This is a, this is a kindness. God is kind. And um, we'll see here in a second what His kindness is for. And then the word forbearance, to bear with somebody, to endure difficulty. Uh, um, and I like this, this idea of delaying 
the delaying of something that someone deserves. In this case, it's, it's wrath or judgment. And so what he's saying is, God has been kind to you, and he's, forbear, like he's had forbearance for you. He's, he's delayed what you deserve, and you've, mis, you've misjudged it. You've missed it. He says you've been, that God is patient, which means long sufferings, like staying calm and measured in the face of an angry situation. It's the opposite of irritability, opposite of being irritable. So all these things that, that God is towards, towards them, and <coughs> the reason I think that he's probably talking to Jewish people is because they have a history of this, and, and um, you, can, you can go back and read through the Old Testament, read through the story of Israel, and see all these things happening um, with God and his people, kindness and forbearance and patience with them. And he says, for God's kindness was meant to lead you to repentance. And so this is, this is what uh, is so incredible, is that even though God is a God who is, um, has a right judgment and will, will pass judgment, and, and wrath is involved in that, um, His righteous judgment, which we'll, which we'll see here in the next verse, um, you, you have a purpose behind it all. That all of it is led is to lead us to change our mind. That's what this word repentance means. It's metanoia. It means change, change of mind. To change your mind. To, to turn, and you're going one direction and to turn to go back the other, other direction. To do a 180 in your thinking and in your living. And so all of God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. It's a big deal. Third thing that's happening here is in the next few verses. Uh, read 5 through 11. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek the glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Okay, so right off the bat, he starts talking about this. He continues talking about judgment, but specifically, specifically God's righteous judgment. So, last week, Paul, not Paul, Drew, um, I do that a lot. Nope, not the same, not the same. Uh, so, Drew mentioned, in, in 117, it says God's, God's righteousness is revealed. And then in 118, it says God's wrath is revealed. And so in, in 17 is describing this attribute of God that, that the gospel reveals this attribute of God's righteousness to us. And then in the very next verse, he's describing how God's wrath is going to be revealed. And so this is what you need to know, that Paul is helping us see that these, these are one and the same. Like he, this idea of God's righteousness and God's wrath are the same thing. In fact, <clears throat> this summer we, we went through this series on the attributes of God. And we, we, had, we taught through ten different attributes, which, by the way, this reminds me. So the reason I'm wearing this microphone, um, it's not coming through the speakers. We record these. We put them on our podcast. We have a podcast. We've, we've recorded all of our, our sessions for the last couple of years or whatever. But we, so anyway, we have all these on, on from the summer. And one of the attributes that we, that we talked about this summer was the simplicity of God. The simplicity of God. Um, it may not be what you think it is. It's not that God is just, he's just a simple man. He just likes meat and potatoes. And that's not, it's not the same. It's this idea that God is um, completely unified. He, is, he, he has no parts. You can't separate him. You can't compartmentalize him. He, he can't contradict himself. His attributes are the same as his essence. <coughs> so, you have to kind of wrap your mind around this idea that when God, God's righteousness and God's wrath are the same thing. Because, so God's wrath would be God's righteousness, righteousness towards those who have rejected Him. And, and God's righteousness 
revealed to those who have accepted him would be mercy. So it's the same thing. They're, they're, they're in perfect unity, in perfect harmony. They're, they can't be separated. Like you and I, we can, have, we can have good days and bad days. We can contradict ourselves. We can say we, we want something and then we can do something different. That, that doesn't happen with God. God's love and His justice and His wrath and His mercy and His, I don't know, His, his uh, unchangingness and His ever-presence are all always there. You can't separate one out and go, no, I don't like this one. They're all, they're all the same. And so that's, that's what this is helping us see. Um, so why are they judged? Or what are they judged for? And it says they're self-seeking. They do not obey the truth. They obey unrighteousness. And that um, God will impartially, and this is kind of the idea, God will impartially reward and punish both Jews and Gentiles. This is why I think, that, again, another, another reason why I think he's talking to Jews is because he wouldn't have to say first to the Jew and then to the Gentile if he was speaking to anyone. I think he would just be able to say to all of you. But there, there seems to be an emphasis on, on the Jews first. He says, Glory and honor and immortality, both for the Jew and the Greek, whose actions show the righteous, and, and then wrath and fury and tribulation and distress for both the Jews and the Greek, um, whose actions are evil. So God shows no partiality. That's, that's the point. That's the idea that's, that he's hitting. He's an impartial judge. The fourth thing, and the last one, is 2, 12 through 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day... According to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Okay, so here's the last point. That God's impartiality means no one escapes His just standard. Like no one, is, no one escapes His just standard. So Jews will be judged by their sin, which according to the law, under the law, and they will perish under the same thing, uh, under the law. And the Gentiles will be judged by their sin without the law, but they will perish without the law. And, and, and you remember in the first verse, or the first section, in last week's section, um, there's, there's the Jews, or sorry, the Gentiles have this, this natural way of understanding God's, seeing God's uh, invisible attributes. And that there's this, there's this moral law that's written, written in, on their hearts, written within them, that they can understand and discern. And so he's describing this like they're going to be judged, even without the law, they'll be judged by their sin. And that God has a standard for both. And both will be held accountable to it. So Paul and the law are a really big deal. Paul mentions the word law in, in Romans 44 times, 30 times in the first three chapters of, of Romans. So there's a high emphasis on the law at the beginning of this book. So he's kind of emphasizing, he wants to deal with um, specifically how the Jews understand the law, but also specifically how, why the Gentiles need to understand how the law works and why God gave it. And how Jesus fulfills it. So, anytime, anytime the law is mentioned, this I don't know if this question comes up, but you might wonder, like, okay, is he is he talking about a specific law? Because there's 613 of them. Is he talking about a specific one, or is he talking about the whole thing? And kind of the general rule is he's talking about the whole thing. Like the Mosaic Law would be would be the Torah, which, which would be the first five books of the Old, of the Old Testament. And so, the, kind of the general rule is, anytime the word law is mentioned, unless it's dealing with a specific one, it's, it's talking about all of them, the whole thing. Um, in verse 13, he says, not hearers, but doers. He's, he's, again, Jews would be considered the hearers of the law. They've been hearing it. Um, but he says, that's not... That's not it. There has to be a, an action followed. There has to be a, a, an emphasis on obeying it and doing it. 
and those were justified. It's the first time this word justified is mentioned, this idea of declared righteous. So that's, so both Jews and Gentiles will be judged by their sin, um, breaking the law. Both of them will be judged. And the second thing is that the judgment that will take place on this day, a day um, when God judges the people through Jesus. So it's not a new idea that there will be a day of judgment. That's not a new idea. What is a new idea is that now Jesus is somehow standing in the center of this judgment. Somehow His gospel is at the center of this judgment. And that is a new thing. That's a new, that's a new idea and a new emphasis and a new concept. Um, it kind of reminds me, he says there will be no secrets. It reminds me of Hebrews 4.13. Hebrews 4.13 says um, that everything is, is naked and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. So, in other words, like nothing will be will go unnoticed, and even even secret things will go unnoticed. Will go noticed. Nothing will go unnoticed. And uh, what I love about this verse is it both. I think it should put a little bit of a holy fear in us, but also for those in Christ, it should be a, a source of comfort. Um, that the one who the one who sees all is the one who paid for all for us. So, so we've got to deal with one thing. And I don't know if these came up in, in your table group questions or if you reading ahead got confused by what seems to be all these do-gooders. Paul's describing these do-gooders. In, in verse 7, he says, they're well-doing, seeking, seeking for glory and honor and immortality. In verse 10, he says, um, glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. Um, verse 13 says, the doers of the law. Verse 14 says, by nature, they do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves. Who's he talking about? And how all of a sudden... So wait, I thought, you know, I thought all of this had to do with Jesus. So, so you're, Paul, are you saying that somebody can just obey the law perfectly and they're totally fine? Is that how this works? And so they're, they're, it's a little confusing. And, and so there's a couple options, okay? Here's three options. One is, this is a hypothetical situation. And Paul is showing, um, he's showing to be impossible. That he's kind of throwing out of this hypothetical deal where, where maybe, you know, maybe this happens. And, and so, some arguments for, for this. Verses 7 and 10, Paul is emphasizing those whose actions show who they are. They're either righteous or unrighteous. Um, because of those who were, who were self-righteous and hypocritical. So he's kind of dealing with people's actions, and, he, and he's kind of emphasizing that. And then in verse 13 to 14, Paul's emphasizing God's impartiality and just judgment. And so that's maybe that's why he's using these, these kind of hypotheticals to emphasize his point. Option two is that Paul is talking about a uniquely good individual. Um, this is what maybe some have, some might believe. I don't think it's a very good option, uh, mainly because of what he'll say in the very next, our very next text next week, our next section in chapter th- in chapter three. Um, so that's not a great option, but it could be that he's that's an option. The third option is that Paul is talking about Christians, and he might be foreshadowing what's to come. And and in Romans eight through eleven, he's describing someone who's free and no longer condemned in Christ and is free from the law of sin and death. And so, so maybe Paul's kind of hinting at something that he's going to conclude on, or he's, he's kind of creating a little bit of tension in them to, to, to answer it later. Um, either way, it, it, it is a little uncertain. And so like when we come to this text, one of the things that, um, that is helpful to kind of see that, that I think about whenever I come to a text that we, we can't really know exactly what it means, is I, I think about this bullseye deal. So there are certain texts where there's enough verses to help us know exactly what was meant. Like Jesus lived a perfect life. He died on a cross. He rose from the dead. That's not vague in the Bible at all. That's a bullseye kind of thing. We know exactly what, what they're talking about when they said he died. He died on a cross. We know what he's talking about. Um, when he says they, they are a law to themselves, I mean, that because there aren't a whole lot of texts 
saying a similar thing. We have one, one verse like this. There's no other verse really like it. Then we have to kind of put it somewhere here. And we go, yeah, I mean, it's, here's some options. I don't really exactly know. Here's the context, and maybe this is what's happening. But this, this kind of idea, if you kind of think in these ways, the less you have, the less you have to go by, um, the less strong you should be about what you think it means. And the more it should be like, well, I don't know. It's maybe it, there's some options here. And here's some, here's some other verses that might help us understand it. This is where systematic theology can really come into, into play. We can go, okay, well, we know he can't mean this because there's, there's these other verses that say that. So we know he can't mean that. Um, he, maybe he means this. And maybe he means this. So we just kind of have to work it out. Um, either way, but sometimes biblical writers leave things unclear. This could, this could also be a rhetorical device for Paul to leave it a little bit unclear so they kind of lean in and go, wait, what? And, and he could be doing that on purpose to kind of get them to lean forward so he can drop the hammer in, at the end of three. So that, that's what might be happening here. So I'll, let me end with this question. Why is it that in chapter one, um, Paul seems to be very judgy, and yet in this chapter he seems to be kind of going after people who judge. Why is that? And that's what Drew's going to talk about next. So let's take a little break, and then he'll get up and continue forward. All right, we're going to try something a little bit different tonight, something we don't normally do. Uh, we'll see. It could, could go awesome, could be a disaster. We'll give it a shot. Uh, but I, I want to hear from you real quick, so this is going to require some group participation, all right? Let's pretend here that we are going to go off and start a brand new perfect society, okay? So uh, yesterday, Boone Pickens passed away, all right? Let's, we're going to pretend Boone, in his last dying wish, willed his entire ranch to OSU to be used by one organization at OSU to go and, and start this new experiment of a perfect society. And the table, we won. We won the drawing for that thing, all right? So congratulations to us. And now it's our job to go, and we're going to go move down to Boone's Ranch, and, uh, and it's our job to create a perfect society in which, or I say perfect society, yeah, pe technically perfect society, in which people live as they should, and life goes as it ought to go. Um, so we're going to do that. If, if we were to come up with seven rules for that society, what would they be? So here, I just want to hear from you. Just throw out what you think we should make as a rule, and then we'll, we'll start whittling it down. So somebody give me one. Wait, wait, wait. Actually, wait. First, very important. What are we calling our society? The tablet. The tablet. All right. <laughs> The tablet. All right, sweet. So, what are, what are our rules for the tablet? Dogs are mandatory. Dogs are mandatory. Okay. Brush teeth. There you go, okay. Okay. So. Okay, now I don't want to steer you too much, but so far, you're not allowed to be on Instagram, but you can kill people, all right? So, like, maybe we might want to tighten it up in a couple areas. So, there you go, no murder. Okay, that's a good one, all right. Okay. Okay. Okay, somebody give me something else. Okay. I heard no drugs, and then we'll do golden rule. Not. Narcotics, all right. Give me, give me three, four, five more. No sinning. No sinning. That's, that's a good. <laughs> Pretty good rule there. All right. 
Everyone will be arrested the first day. Um, all right, anything else? If you literally, if it's like, okay, if I wanted society to go right, this is what I would say people can or can't do. Free food. Okay. No daylight saving. All right. Dad jokes. No dad jokes? All dad jokes. All right. Anything else? All right. Cool. This will be a, this will be, we'll see. Um, so, last week I, I made this statement at the beginning that we were actually jumping into an idea that's pretty easy to agree on. Uh, you don't even have to be a Christian, uh, you don't even have to believe in God uh, to, believe a, to, to believe at least part of what Paul talks about last week, which is that the world is messed up. That's pretty easy, to, to, to universally almost agreed on that the world is messed up, that the world is in a lot of ways bad and wicked. You just look around and it's broken, and we can all see that pretty clearly. Uh, here's a statement that's not so easy to agree on, uh, to get people to join in on, and that is that I am messed up. That the reason the world is bad is because I am bad. That I myself am a bad person. That one is harder to get people to sign on to. Uh, that I am behind these things. In fact, um, there have been multiple studies done on this where they take people and they walk them through this, quiz, this uh, questionnaire asking them kind of how they evaluate themselves. And the vast majority of people when asked will, um, will almost always qualify themselves as a good and moral person. That they are virtuous, that they are kind, that they are upright, that they are those kinds of things. And not just that, but actually the vast majority in these studies will say that they are better than the average person, that they are better than all the other people, which statistically is impossible for the majority to be better than average, right? But, but everybody says, if, they, if you ask them, are, how do you rate in comparison to other people when it comes to character, when it comes to morals and virtue? Almost everyone says, I'm better. That I, that I do better than most people, that I do better than the average person. In fact, there was a 2013 study that was done amongst inmates in prison. And they asked these inmates to compare themselves in a number of different categories um, to their other inmates. Okay? So how do you compare to the other inmates when it comes to things like being moral and trustworthy and honest and dependable, compassionate, generous, law-abiding, self-controlled, and kind? Those those nine things, and they all said that I'm better than everybody else at this, um, which could be true. Like, if you're in prison with a bunch of serial killers, you're probably more self-controlled than most of those people, right? Um, but here's where it gets crazy. When they ask those inmates to then compare themselves to the average person not in prison, to everyone else, uh, almost without fail, they scored themselves better than everybody else except for in one category. Uh, law-abiding, all right? Now, on that one, they, they, they recognized, probably not. So on that one, they rated themselves, I kid you not, equal. They were the same as everybody else <laughs> on law-abiding, okay? Um, which, which, yeah, by definition, you're in prison. That means that you are less law-abiding than other people, right? Um, but, but something in them is not able to see that. Something in them is able to look at that and joke, and and it's easy for us to look at that and laugh without realizing that the same thing that is at work in them in a more obvious and extreme way is at work in every one of us as well. This is actually, they actually have a term for it. They call it illusory superiority. This illusion within all of us that we are better, that we think we are better than we are. That we think that we are superior to other people. This tendency to deceive ourselves about how good we actually are. And actually they say that this is kind of dangerous because they also say that those who consider themselves more moral 
are also can be more prone to do immoral things because you can justify it. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to cheat on my taxes here, but like, I mean, it's okay because if you look at the rest of my life, I am so good in so many other things that it's like not a huge deal for me to do this one thing. And that's the way that works out in people's lives. It's kind of interesting to me. I think that maybe um, modern psychology is hitting on something that the Bible has been touching on for thousands of years for us. This question Scott asked, why is it that the Bible seems to be totally cool with judging at some point, Paul doesn't mind doing it in chapter 1, and totally against judging at some points, Paul does it, uh, is against it in chapter 2. The reason why is because the Bible is not against ju making judgments, period. Paul's not against making judgments, period. That's what he does in uh, Romans 1. And we're told to do that. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, judge other believers. You should judge Christians, he says. And so he tells us to judge. He's not against making an evaluation of someone's character. Every time the Bible tells us not to judge, it's in the context of my own sin as well. It's in the context of this. What the Bible is saying is, I believe, that when I, um, when I look to place blame and judge other people, I lose sight of the sin within me as well. That's why one of the most famous passages where Jesus says in Matthew 5, don't judge lest you be judged, one that people love to quote a lot, he says that in the context of saying, he goes on to say, you cannot sit there and try to remove a speck from your brother or sister's eye when you've got a log in your own eye. Jesus doesn't have any problem with judging. Because at the end of Matthew, of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, he's going to say, there will be false teachers who come and try to teach you, and you can know whether they're real or not by the fruit in their life. So Jesus says, judge their lives, and you'll know whether to believe them or not. He doesn't have a problem. What he's saying is don't judge in a way that causes you to lose sight of yourself. Because we're real good at losing sight of our own sin. It's really easy to do those things. One of the biggest problems people have with the idea of judgment and of hell and of a God that would send people to hell is they cannot get themselves around this idea of a God that sends good people like me to hell. I can't imagine with all these good people like my family members and like me that, I would, that, that he would send me to, in, in, in a number of conversations that I've had with uh, people who call themselves atheists or agnostic. They want to be real quick to remind me, to, to tell me that they are good and moral people. Drew, I'm a good person. I'm kind. I don't need Christianity to help me be kind. I'm, I'm a kind person. I'm honest. I'm a person of integrity. I help people who are in need. And you're going to tell me that your God, if this God exists, that he's that petty that he would send me to hell just because I don't believe him. I do all the other things, and you think that he would send me to hell just because I don't believe in him when I'm a good person? There are a lot of other people who believe in God of some sort. They don't know if it's this God of Christianity or the God of Islam or, or maybe kind of a mix of all of it. And they don't really know how it all works. They do believe there's something, though, and they're sure that they're going to heaven. They're sure that they're cool with God because... Dude, I'm a good person. I do lots of good things. I'm so, I do so much more than so many other people my age and stage around me. I try to live a kind life. I try to be nice. I try to reach out to those who are in need. Maybe some of you in here, if I were to ask you why God would accept you at this moment, or if you were to die, why God would take you into heaven, you're banking on your record. The fact that I... I am a pretty kind person. I am honest. I do help when people need things. I do a lot of good things. But here's the deal. As the Bible defines it, the question is not, do you do good things? When, when the atheist talks to me and says I'm a good person, I don't argue with them. Dude, you seem like a good person to me. The question, though, is not, do you do good things? The question is, do you only do good things? Do you only ever do good things? That's the question that gets 
presented to us. When you read through the list in Romans 1, at the very end of it, in 29 and 38, when it says that people um, are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, um, that they're covetous, or he'll talk about being full of envy, murder, or strife, that is, they, they have fights with people, that they're deceitful, that they're gossips, that they're slanderers, that they're prideful, that they consider themselves better, that they disobey their parents. You mean to tell me that you never once slipped up in any of those things, that you don't still currently slip up in those things and find yourself being prideful from time to time? Tell me that you don't ever gossip, that you don't talk about people behind their back, that you never bend the truth to your own advantage. The question is not, do you do good things? The question is, do you only do good things? Or are there other things within you that mess you up? That's a different kind of standard. And then there are some people who will say, actually, yeah, but that's, that's the Bible, and I don't adhere to the Bible standard. I have my own standard for morality. So don't try to force your religious morality on me. Don't try to force your worldview or your way of living and say that I have to live up to that. I don't believe in that stuff. And I say, okay, fine then. Let's play by your own rules. Let's talk through your own standards for how you live. I don't ask most people to come up with a perfect society and how they do that. Um, but, but most people, if they were to list off, if, if you know, they tell us our phones are listening to us all the time, um, that it hears everything you say, if at the end of your life, if we just um, found some way to unlock and just pressed and just listened to everything you ever said about what was true and right and what was moral and how a person should live, would your life match up with that? Your own standards for what makes a society actually operate that would make people thrive, treat others as you would be treated, um, do not steal, uh, no sinning. I like that one. Um, would you even live up to that standard? And, and the truth is that no one would. That you don't even live up to your own standard if that's the one that we're going by. And then when you add on to that the fact that Jesus actually says that the standard goes beyond just what you do or don't do. It's what's in your heart. In Matthew 5, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to punishment for that. But I say to you that anyone who has hatred in his heart towards his brother, anger in his heart towards his brother, is guilty of murder. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a person lustfully in their heart is guilty of adultery in their heart. And the truth is, actually, I think most people know that too. That a society in which none of us murder each other, but we all hate each other, that doesn't work either. And we understand that actually that in and of itself is a sin within me. And we're told here at the very end of our passage, Romans 2.16, that Jesus will not judge simply the things that everyone else saw. It says he will judge the secrets of men and women. When it all is laid bare, he's going to judge you by what was in your heart. He's going to judge you by what was in your mind. He knows those things. Um, so there's this theological uh, term that gets thrown out sometimes uh, when, when people discuss sin in human beings. Uh, and, and it's called total depravity. Uh, it's, it's this big fancy word, depravity just means moral corruption. And the idea of total depravity is that human beings are completely morally corrupt. And this is, this is actually believed, this is not just a, for those of you who are into the Calvinist-Arminian thing, um, this is not just believed by Calvinists, this is believed by most theologians, that, that human beings are totally depraved. Uh, morally corrupt. What they mean by that, though, is not necessarily, at least as, as J.I. Packer, this one guy describes, he says, it doesn't mean that you're an awful person in every part of your life. What total depravity means is that there is no part of your life in which you are as you should be. But you can't look at who you are in any area and go, yes, I am the perfect standard of what someone should be when it comes to humility. I'm exactly what God intended when it comes to honesty. I'm exactly what Jesus wants me to be when it comes to kindness or love or integrity, those things that, that there is no area of any of our lives that we can look at and go, I'm what you should be. I'm what God intended. That's what it is to be depraved as a human being. So the common understanding about Jews, when I was when I was growing up, and this is probably the way you were taught to. 
I was always told that the Jewish people thought that the way they got saved was by doing good deeds. That they thought that if you just do a lot of really good deeds, and if you can do more good deeds than bad deeds, and if you can just obey the law and do all the good things in it, um, then you'll get to heaven. But if you end up doing more bad things than good things, then you go to hell. That's, that's how I was always taught that the Jews believe. Actually, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, when we go back and we look at some of those like first century documents that the Jewish people were writing, um, there are different kind of beliefs. For, for some of them, they did believe that. They believed that what saved you, what got you to heaven, what made you accepted by God was being a really, really good person. And then there are others who actually believed that it didn't really have to do with the fact that I'm a good person. It has to do with the fact that I'm Jewish. And what's going to save me in the end is that I'm part of God's chosen people. So, yeah, I mean, we're good. We're the Jews and we're better than, like, Gentiles. We're better than pagans. We do. But, but you know, regardless of if I've got it all together, I'm part of God's people, so I'm in. And, and so there are some people who believe that. And then I think that for a lot of them, that there is this kind of, messy, sloppy, not fully thought out thing in between. This kind of like, yes, I mean, I'm, I'm part of God's people and I am mostly good. I'm, I mean, I'm not always good, but I'm mostly good and it's my goodness as a part of God's people. And as I think through that, I think that that actually sounds a whole lot like uh, Bible Belt Christianity. That sounds a whole lot like American Christianity sometimes. This idea there are a lot of people who grow up like in the Midwest specifically with this belief that you know I'm I was born in a Christian family and I mean like we went to church and I believe the Bible I believe that Jesus died for my sins I believe he's the son of God and and um, I'm a good person I, I live mostly good I, better than most people all right so like I, yeah I mess around with my girlfriend but I don't like hook up with people like different people every week and I'm not doing that kind of stuff and I don't like like, I do sometimes cheat on school stuff a little bit, but I don't, like, I don't steal. Or, or I, yeah, I look at stuff on my phone, but I don't do, like, the really bad stuff. Like, I don't go to, like, strip clubs and stuff and, and, and those kinds of things. And so, I mean, I, I'm, I go to church. I, I, I do all these good things. And there are a whole lot of people who bank themselves on the fact that I'm sort of kind of connected to God's people. And I'm sort of mostly better than the most of the people I see around me. And when you think in terms like that, then Paul's words that he speaks to the Jewish people here in this, in this passage, I think ring loud and clear in the ears of American spirituality and the ears of American Christians. When Paul says this in verse 3, Do you suppose you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And this is huge. For a lot of people go, I mean, I think I'm good because my life is working out fine. And things are going well for me. And if, if God had a problem, He'd put an end to it. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Don't presume that just because God is kind to you, that He's okay with you. Don't presume that just because... He's not punishing you directly right now. That that means he's pleased with who you are and the way you're living. Do not presume on his kindness. That kindness is not meant to let you continue in your sin, but to call you out of it. He says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Um, I don't know everybody in this room, but if that is you, if you're the person who has banked your life on your goodness because you're able to look around at most people and go, ah, I'm better than most people. Or banked your life on the fact that, I mean, I, I believe things about Jesus. I go to church. I, I plead with you, if that is you, that you would change. I plead with you that you would not presume upon the kindness of God and store up wrath for yourself. That you would do what it takes to fix those things. Now, we haven't really gotten to that point in Romans yet where we talk about what to do to fix things. That's coming at the end of chapter 3. But I'll tell you what, if, if you want to know, we got no problem spoiling it for you after this. And I would love to talk to you about what it looks like to go, I don't want to be that person anymore. I don't want to try and bank on my goodness and then find out that my goodness was not enough. I want to change something. Now for the rest of you who already know the answer, who already know what you're supposed to do, who already know what makes you right with God, 
my question for you is, do you see tendencies of yourself in this text? Do you see a tendency in yourself to grade yourself on a curve based on what you see everybody else do around you, rather than grade yourself in comparison to God's holiness and the standard that He sets for you? You find yourself casting stones at a lot of people in your mind and thereby justifying yourself because you do those things. And if so, I would plead with you to repent of that and to let yourself be changed so that you would no longer be deceived, so that you would no longer move yourself further from what Jesus intends for you. Let me pray and we'll be done. Dear God, I know... uh, by, uh, by my definition, I am a good person. That I'm, I'm nice, as Scott said last week. And it gets really easy for me to think well of myself until I stop and, and hold, uh, hold myself up to the standard of your word, up to the standard of Jesus. And I pray that you would not let me be deceived into thinking that I'm good. And I pray that this for this mercy and this grace on the the men and women in this room, that you would not let them buy into the lie that they're good, Um, that they would hear and know their need for you, that you would be kind enough to reveal their sinfulness and their depravity to them. And if there are those in here who have been banking on that goodness, who've been counting on that to make them right with you, that you would make it clear to them and convict them of that, that that will never do so that they could seek you and find Jesus who does make us right. I ask you that by your Holy Spirit's power and in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Thank you guys for, again, glad you braved the uh, storm tonight. Uh, I don't know if it's still raining out there or not, but hang out with us for a little bit. If you got questions about the retreat or anything you heard tonight, we would love to talk to you. You can also text us. Those are our cell phone numbers right there.